Hey everybody, it's Greg Bendian, and we're back at the Progcast. Today we're taking things in a, in a direction that we've gone into uh, several times before, talking about the music of Ornette Coleman, and who better to help me do that and get into some of his concepts than one of his sidemen and a longtime collaborator of Ornette, keyboardist Dave Bryant. Hi, Dave. Hi, Greg. Longtime listener, first-time participant. Good to be here. Good to have you. I know that we uh, we did one for your channel on YouTube uh, talking about Ornette, and, and uh, we played a gig that night at at um, at the Cambridge which church? Uh, Harvard Epworth. Harvard, and uh, with the great bass player Hilliard Green, who's also going to be a guest on this show. Oh, uh, great! Great. Played some Ornette tunes. Played some Dave Bryan tunes, uh, but. Pre-concert had an interview with Dave where I was talking about my different uh, experiences and takes on Ornette's music and and how I kind of relate him or not to Cecil Taylor. Um, and Dave, as a keyboard player, it's so interesting to me because there have been so few keyboard players that have worked with Ornette. And I'm kind of curious how you came into his field of vision in terms of, well, I, I need a keyboard player now all of a sudden. Well, it was more like I needed a mentor all of a sudden. Um, I had kind of gotten to a place, and this is kind of going to be overlapping, Venn diagram open, overlapping with your universe a little bit. I think probably um, a simultaneous pursuits of interest in like the uh, the uh, avant-garde with, uh, you know, not only Ornette, but Cecil and the art ensemble, a lot of things that were happening in the mid to late 70s. And uh, at the same time with electronic music and trying to find a solo voice on instruments like the mini Moog with the pitch bend wheel a la Jan Hammer and um, starting to feel increasingly... Um, uh, not at home on the piano, even though that was my instrument. But a lot of the music I was listening to didn't have a piano uh, or it was uh, Cecil, but that was uh, Cecil is so strong. It's like you, you're either playing like him or you're not playing like him. And so um, I was uh, finding some expression in, in techniques that had to do with uh playing in the cracks between the no escaping equal temperament. And so um, at the time, I had some friends who were uh, going for those, I think they were NEA grants at the time, where it's like you uh, try to get the prospective teacher to, uh, to sign up and they'll get a grant and then, you know, you'll spend some time with them. And I had... Uh, uh, a friend that tried to, to hook up with Cecil that way. Uh, I knew somebody else that was going to try to talk to uh, Elvin Jones about doing it. Um, I was in, when I was at Berkeley, I remember, uh, I didn't know him very well, but we had uh, some some close friends in common, uh, Steve Vai, and I remember him running out of his dorm room shouting, Frank called back, Frank called back. And uh I remember just having that there was this thing in the air of uh, people um, reaching out to artists 
and just trying to connect. And I thought, you know, I'm just such a, 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 a layabout. I thought I, I have no idea how to, to, I'm still a horrible PR person. I'm, I'm that aspect of this is just not uh, up my alley. And so I thought, you know, if I could connect with, with somebody, that would be a thing. And I thought, you know, who would I like to study with if I got one of those grants? And I thought piano players, you know, and I thought you know, Cecil, who else? Keith Jarrett. I thought these guys, you know, I don't know. I, th I think if I had a chance to speak with either of them, uh, the last question I would have asked would have been about the piano. Mm -hmm. so I, I figured that would be the last thing that they would give up some information about. But now I think, uh, you know, at least maybe Keith later in life had mellowed a little bit about it. But, um, you know, I figured Cecil would probably rather talk about um, ballet or, or, you know, his favorite bridge architects or Architect something like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, I thought, well, I couldn't really hold my end of the conversation up with that. And uh, and uh, looking around, I, I remember thinking, boy, Ornette would be like the perfect guy to study with because he's sort of anti-piano. And uh, and so it wouldn't even come up that way. And I, at the same time, too, I was very much in the thrall of uh, the fringe. You know, our friends, uh, George Garzon and Bob Galati and their trio they had with uh, Rich Appleman, later John Lockwood. And uh, as the uh, hometown heroes here in Berkeley, uh, in Boston. And... Um, so all of I had this sort of idea in my head of kind of wanting to uh, to crash that party to see how the other half lived. What was it that made them uncomfortable with the piano? And I figured if I could solve that problem, then I could solve the problem of whatever my personal discomfort was with the instrument. You know, so I I wanted to be able to to bridge that. And um, so uh, I didn't think uh, too much more about it. And uh, Bruce Thomas, um, uh, who played uh, with a group Ornette had called the White House Band, that was a uh, uh, rehearsal band that uh, that never went out, from what I understand. But, but I, I I can recall some some things about the group, and yeah. I'm wondering. If it wasn't, wasn't it just called White House? I always heard the White House band from these guys, but this was John Snyder. You must have heard about it, right? Yeah, but also uh, wasn't um, George Cartwright in it? I don't know who else was in it. I know, I just know Bruce and uh, I think his brother, and I'm not sure who the other people were. I think on a... Um, uh, Google search one time, I did find a page out there that had some information about it. But, um, and I keep thinking I should talk to uh, Bruce about it and see if he wants to get some some uh, reminiscences uh, on the record. But I had a friend who worked in the ensemble office at Berkeley and he came back uh, one evening and said, I talked to a guy today who says he played piano with Ornette. Well, that was like telling me he just met an astronaut. You know, I mean, that was an imaginary gig that that didn't exist. I, I couldn't even conceive of it. And so I thought, I got to find this guy. And so I, I tracked him down at school. Uh, he was a new faculty member and he just retired, I think, in the past few years. But uh, I uh, 
told him what I was interested in. Love to talk to you about it. Oh, sure. It's end of semester right now. I'm grading finals. We'll talk next semester after I get this. Tracked him down again. Uh, you know, couldn't couldn't make it happen. So when I had to go in again to select a uh, uh, private lesson instructor for the next semester, I said, I want Bruce Thomas. And since he was brand new, I waltzed right in. And uh, first lesson, I said, uh, you know, man, I'm, I'm not going to beat around the bush. I'm here to talk about Ornette. And he was great. He brought in manuscript books um, of things Ornette had written out for him. He brought in cassettes of rehearsals. He answered every stupid question I had, every stupid desperate at that age, you know, question I had. And uh, around that time, too, I'm thinking this was 81. I'd, uh, there was an interview with Ornette and Downbeat with uh, Howard Mandel, I think. And uh, Ornette mentioned something that a student of his had said to him recently. And uh, uh, Bruce, uh, I, I asked Bruce, does he have students? Could I, could I study with Ornette? And he goes, well, I, I don't know. I guess I may have heard him, uh, talk about that once or twice. He said, but, uh, you know, sure. You could, you could call him up, you know, uh, give it a try. What's he going to say? No. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. So he was going to be at Berkeley with prime time. I think this was December of 81 and uh, a friend of mine, work sound at the performance center and he snuck me into the sound check and um i watched the sound check and then uh at the end of it went backstage jumped down backstage i had never been backstage at the performance center before and uh looked around and it was deserted they cleared up and so i'm so nervous i get some water from the water fountain as i stand up with my cheeks full of water somebody goes hi how you doing as they walk by and it's Ornette. And I choked down the water, flag him down. Yeah. Give him my life story in 15 seconds. Piano, Bruce Thomas, blah, 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 blah. Would it be possible to study with you sometime, have a lesson? And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I think that'd be possible. He said, um, I'll be in the book in a couple of weeks. He said, give me a call and we'll send it up. And he says, if you want to write to me, um, you can uh, write to my to me through my manager, Sid Bernstein, because, you know, at the time, you know, I think he'd heard that, uh, you know, the Bernsteins put the Beatles in Shea Stadium. So you want a little piece of that action. So for yes. that world, that makes that makes plenty of sense. So I, I did send him a letter through the management, which he never received. But. Uh, oh, first of all, when I tell this story to students now, I have to explain what in the book means because nobody knows what in the book means, the telephone directory. Mm -hmm. uh, and usually in show business, somebody says, I'll be in the book or whatever. That's a nice way of saying, good luck finding me. But uh, a few weeks later, I remember I called up uh, New York Information, asked for the number of Ornette Coleman. I, I remember the operator said, uh, is that a business? <laughs> yeah. That he hopes so. the book, uh, and in fact, we would steal them from from the sidewalks in New York to bring over to New Jersey. And Paul Motion was in the phone book, so I could call him up and bother him. Right, right. Well, yeah, I mean, that's uh, the New York Directory. I would imagine that was a real, uh, you know, uh, like uh, Houses of the Stars map in Los Angeles or something, right? It was hot. So, um, 
uh, I, I called him up. We had a very nice conversation. I sent him a tape of my Berkeley senior recital where I played Dee Dee, which we have um, recorded and performed. And that was a really great homecoming for me to come back around. And just as an aside, I know as I was uh, telling you before our CD was released, I listened to that original version of of um, Dee Dee, which of course uh, was recorded with Charnette's father playing drums, and then our version with Charnette. And I, I remember thinking, oh gosh, I really don't want to have to suffer this comparison. And I thought, but I don't want to be the second person who does it. I want to know how bad it is before it goes out there. And I was pleasantly surprised by how much stuff the three of us with uh, obviously as you know no rehearsal for that cd but just on our own had learned from those recordings and those musicians and it just sounded um it didn't sound to me uh we were evoking that kind of playing we weren't uh slavishly copying it but it sounded affectionate it sounded informed it sounded comfortable through uh familiarity you know that was and that was just really nice i really felt good about it and i thought all right well i, I think i can put this out now you know felt pretty good but um anyway uh also uh the other thing i wanted to make sure we got to in our chat today because you're so well versed in this type of thing was the other thing that i had been looking at besides trying to uh work out ornette's harmonic ideas was applying uh, techniques from visual narrative to music. And so one thing I was um, uh, reading some stuff like uh, Sergei Eisenstein, the, the Soviet silent filmmaker, you know, the Battleship Potemkin and um, some other things. Uh, some of his uh, ideas about montage theory, that type of uh, film editing techniques. And uh, I hadn't read comics for a long time, but I'd gone through pretty intense period of, you know, 66 through 72, you know, say, of um, of uh, comic book fandom when I was a kid. And um, I remembered, oh, yeah, this was before home video. And I certainly didn't have a movieola in my dorm room. And I thought, I remember some of those guys had these kind of cinematic techniques. And so uh, the next time I went home uh, for the holidays, I went down in the basement, dug out all my old comic books, picked out some of my favorites, like by Will Eisner, Jim Steranko, our mutual friend, and uh, brought them back. And I would uh, practice with a, a page open to a favorite sequence, look at it and think, all right, well, what would the uh, the musical analog of that sequence be? And so had some ideas there because... I was just trying to to find some organizing principles and I knew I wanted to improvise freely, but to have it informed by composition and informed by other organizational techniques and be able to figure out how people who were good storytellers, good communicators that way. There's that whole thing of, uh, uh, time going either horizontally in chronological time or that thing that you see so much in, in 20th century art. Yeah. Where it's 
right now, right now, right now, right now, right now. It's always right now. Oh, and by the way, is uh, does that book have the uh, the Captain America stories in the back? Uh, there's one. There's one volume of that that has the. Uh, those, to those that are listening and not watching, uh, Dave and I were introduced, I believe, by the Marvel artist Jim Steranko. That sound right, Dave? Uh, he asked me if I knew you, and uh, I didn't. And then um, uh, I uh, went to see one of the Mahavishnu Project gigs and gave you a tape of me playing with uh, Bottle Roy, something we'd done. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. So there, uh, uh, Jim's work. Yeah, there was a, another uh, book that had um, one of the Captain America stories, you know, where um, um, Madam Hydra breaks the mirror well and that's where uh there's the the tombstone on the cover right yeah 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 and uh and so that sequence that's like a literal transposition of eisenstein to the page so that's where the two come together but i wrote two pieces one dedicated to eisenstein and one dedicated to steranko that were on my senior recital and then i had dd on the uh, senior recital and i have spent the rest of my life living out my senior recital uh, pretty much. But um, uh, so I got in touch with Jim after that and he was very receptive, you know, to the work I was doing. So that was a, that was a, a has been a wonderful friendship. Um, yeah, and then simultaneously, uh, I did the Requiem for Jack Kirby in 2001 and didn't know that anybody else had drawn inspiration from comic book art. And so I think that was something that we connected on uh, right away. Yeah. yeah. A lot of the same yeah. interests in, in uh, visual storytelling, for sure. And how so, it affects yeah. narrative and in, 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 in improvising, I think, is, is a good way to look at it. Yeah. And for me, that whole thing of, as I said, chronological time, that beginning, middle and end, the dramatic form, tension and release and so forth, uh, as opposed to it's always right now. And that that's what I heard a lot in, well, like in primetime music. It's always right now. Well, I wanted to ask you about this. Um, as someone who played in a version of primetime and also was aware of the two bass, two guitar, two drum primetime, what was your take on Ornette's goal? What was he trying to achieve in prime time what was prime time to you um i don't you know i never ask him that um exact question so anything i'd say it'd have to be a semi-educated guess but i think um part of it was i think he wanted a lot of input you know for uh improvising and um i remember uh, when i i used to go down and uh when yeah the the end of the uh, punchline of the story of me wanting to study with him was yeah I indeed started studying with him and uh, had uh, a lot of marathon phone calls and I'd work on stuff and send him cassette tapes and uh, uh, he ultimately uh, invited me to start coming down and watch the old band rehearse which was invaluable just which, which band so this is Vernon uh, Jamal and Charlie and uh, you know those guys 
And uh, what was so great about that was uh, I remember going in at first and uh, everything kind of sounded alike to me. Uh, you know, it was just this wall of sound. And um, Ornette uh, and the band would occasionally, after I run through, go, oh, yeah, well, that was better. That was it. And they'd all agree. They'd all knew it. And I think it sounded just like the last. I can't, I can't tell what the difference is. Gradually, though, being there, and I would be able to go up when they take a break to Ornette, any of the guys, ask questions. They just seemed delighted that somebody was interested. And indeed, they're right there in the middle of Manhattan in the book. And a lot of times it was just me in the band for 10, 12, 14 hours. I mean, it was crazy. And it would be like, you know, the only person at Disneyland. I mean, it was just, it was ridiculous. So, um, uh, but it was great because I could ask very specific questions about what they had just played. So it was just, you know, you, you just, you, you can't imagine. Well, I know you can imagine because you've had the same experience with other music musicians, I know. But uh, John Turner and Chris Bowman, who I had a trio with at the time, I would, sometimes they would go with me. And other times when I got back home, they'd say, what did he say? What did he say? What happened? And I would have to, in so many words, convey it to him. And at first, uh, it was one of those things where, you know, we're not way with the English language was pretty idiosyncratic. And I think, well, I understood it when he said it to me, but what, what exactly did he say now? And so I tried to, at first, verbatim, work out what he said, but I soon found out that the best way to do it was as he was talking to me and as I understood it, simultaneously translate it to myself in terms that would be more comfortable to me that I could understand. And so when I talked to them, what they what did he say? What did he say? Well, best I can figure it's like this. And I would explain it in my own words, but having to do that was great because if I hadn't had to explain it to somebody else, I don't think I could have ever articulated it again. Um, so between that and having taught it, I teach at the Longy School of Music here in Cambridge, uh, uh, ensemble class, and uh, having to talk to so many different people about it for so long has, has really been a help for me just to get my own thinking uh, more clear. But um, uh so anyway, sorry about that. Where did we leave off the question? Talk about prime time. Prime time. Oh, why he did it? Yeah, you know, uh, there's uh, speculation, of course, that the master musicians of Jujuku in Morocco had a lot to do. He was trying to um, uh, recapture that kind of uh, communal uh, playing. And I know on Dancing in Your Head, Marnette did the overdub of that uh, uh, Moroccan drum that's on there that you can hear in addition to Ronald Shannon Jackson. And so I think, and of course, they've got that little excerpt of him playing with the Jujuke yeah. on there. And so I think there is something to that in some ways. And of course, that dancing in your head, that theme from a symphony, that over and over repetition is, uh, you know, it's almost Mozartian on one hand, and on the other, it's it's reminiscent of the Jujukins. And so there's something about the, the total effect of that album being, see, it's sort of like this. I think for a lot of us, um, 
that kind of two guitar uh, formula was reminiscent of uh, like get up with it, Miles, and that kind of thing. Although I'm sure he would have, Ornette would have denied any influence there at all. But um, I, I think uh, he probably wanted that. And I think he, he as I said, he wanted uh, the input of, uh, he would probably rather have two people comping for him at once than one person comping for him. Well, you see, this is interesting because uh, when is Ornette's first use of electric guitar? Is it Body Meta? Well, I, I guess uh, uh, Dancing in Your Head was released first, but I think, I think they were recorded around the same time, I want to say, maybe. I think so. But um, but before that, before those recordings, I know you can see on YouTube uh, that quartet that he had with James Blood and Sharone and Billy Higgins. That's then, first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there was another um, prime time that uh, didn't record that uh, you can see on YouTube because uh, on our Third Thursdays concert series, uh, I've uh, done something with the bassist, Fred Williams, who I played once with at Berkeley and tracked down. But there was a band that had uh, Blood and Burn Nix and Fred and uh, Donardo and Ronald Shannon Jackson. And so uh, that was uh, another first prime time. I, I guess that that first quartet with uh, Blood uh, and Billy Higgins was sort of a proto prime time. And then prime time Roman numeral one, version one. was, And uh, it's also a prototype for uh, Tales of Captain Black by yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great example of really what that would have sounded like. Right, right. Oh, sorry, I never finished up about the um, uh, White House band, the way Bruce got in touch uh, uh, with uh, Ornette about that was uh, John Snyder's label, uh, uh, A&M Horizon, and then Artist House always had the uh, transcriptions when you opened up the gatefold, and Bruce was the guy that did the transcriptions. And Bruce's brother, I think, also worked for the label, and uh, Snyder was managing Ornette at the time, and then that's how that band got together, and it was supposed to be uh, Ornette's uh, experiment uh, to see if he could communicate his theoretical ideas to schooled white musicians was the way I heard it. Every once in a while, Ornette would say to me, well, you see, David, you're a, you're a schooled musician. And I always used to say, yeah, but this is the first time I was ever a good student. <laughs> and he'd go, I hear you. I hear you. But um, uh, yeah, so that, that was really uh, short of doing it. That's where I really, that's where I got my harmonic sea legs was uh, those hours and hours of the other guys rehearsing and being able to interrogate them on the spot. And I, I did. Sorry, guys. And what, and so what kind of questions did you ask Ornette and what kind of answers did he give you? Um, uh, a lot of times it would take the form of, uh, I think what I heard happening there was something like that. Is that why it was good? And he would be like, yes. And a lot of times that would have to do with uh, relationships between instruments and uh, 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 a way of how uh, um, in the improvisations and in the relationships between uh, musicians, phrasing together, 
or uh, harmonic relationships, uh, rhythmic relationships, uh, they would um, sort of uh, naturally, organically uh, form into groupings that uh, didn't necessarily last for the whole composition, but just sort of spontaneously spring up and morph and continue to develop. And then those would dissolve and other ones would form uh, simultaneously and they'd overlap, you know, with that many musicians. But it's interesting, too, how uh, you mentioned this repetition of a shape and pieces that had sequential movement. Like I think of Airship from uh, of, of Human Feeling. And it's moving an idea around. It seems like that was a real preoccupation for him. Yeah, that whole sequential thing. That was almost like, it always seemed to me that was kind of like uh, a, a musical cubism for him. Taking a phrase and seeing it in different keys was like taking an object and seeing it from different angles, you know, and having that and juxtaposing the points of view like that. So um, uh, in some ways, what that gives you is the is the uh, the uber motif. You know what I mean? As though if, uh, like Andy Warhol or something like that, where you have these prints of the same photograph, but in different colors. And then from that, you can kind of suss out what that black and white photo of Marilyn Monroe or Chairman Mao or whoever it was really looked like. But you get that from different angles like that. So I always say it's like taking a, a phrase like that. I'm quoting myself. I what I always say is I'm talking about because this is why I uh, how I talk to students about it. But um, uh, if you say um, a musical uh, motif like that is like say a chair, uh, having it in different keys is like painting the chair different colors. And so um, what you have to concern yourself with first is whether or not uh, it's a sturdy enough chair to sit in. So that's how you get into talking about intervallic relationships and that type of thing. He had a very almost architectural um, view of, uh, of how to construct a phrase uh, intervallically. And uh, always said the third was the most uh, important interval, which was interesting. And um, uh, but very much you can look at his phrases and see how they're developed. Not a lot of scalar passages, you know, with uh, runs in seconds. You know, a lot of times it's larger intervals and where you get this kind of, you know, trapezoidal kind of. Uh, well, isn't um, it also triadic often? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But but when the triads start to modulate, that's where it gets. That's where a layer of harmonic complexity gets overlaid so he never actually talks about scale degrees past a seventh say you know if you've got like uh 9 11 13 that's another triad imposed over the first one right that's not he never but he never extends from the the tonic note that far he always imposes a second secondary tonality rather than extend the, the first one that far. But there's a question I had about that type of thing where 
I heard Ornette say once to a player, uh, a fifth is the same as a seventh. And he would have this poetic way of relating things. Uh, and, you know, and I heard him say, you know, an apple is the same as an orange. And so I, I'm kind of wondering if, if that ties into his philosophy or if that's something that he mathematically is thinking of intervals that way. Well, you see, Greg, apples and oranges are both fruit. And no, I, uh, when you said that about um, fifths and sevenths being the same, I, I went into my, you know, Ornette translation head and I thought, all right, what would I make of that? And uh, I would say both fifths and dominant sevenths and, and, and sevenths say to me dominant seven. Okay. Or major seven or whatever. But, but I would say probably for him that he would probably be thinking dominant seven and like, and dominant seven means bebop, you know. And I, I'm just thinking about how the chain of, of of thought that way works. But of course, it didn't just mean bebop as a style to him. But but you know that that way of organizing uh, pitches and uh, and tonalities. Uh, but I would say that yeah, a seventh is leading as a to the. A seventh is a leading tone chromatically to the tonic, and the fifth is uh, also leading to the tonic in a 5-1 relationship. So to me, that would be what the fifth and seventh had in common from his point of view. And he would both say that that was, um, those were both like cadential rela relationships. First lesson I ever had with him, he said, you know, he'd give you the harmonic 101 rap but he'd, it would also be, here's what I'm working on this week. Would you like to join me in what I'm working on this week? Oh, yeah, sure. So uh, he said, I've been working on trying to find uh, a resolution uh, without a cadence. And I thought, well, uh, well, so I started thinking about it. And he was playing me a few things and writing a few things out. And I said, you know, it's funny. The first thing I thought of was, and I guess this is would have been a cadence, but it wouldn't have been a a five one cadence, which is what I think he was talking about. And I did, um, I hummed one of those. Or I may have played it. There may have been a keyboard there, but uh, you know, like a, a a trumpet fanfare with like a, a C major, D major, E major, da 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 da, da like that. And uh, I played it for him, and he goes, "That's not bad." <laughs> <laughs> um but uh which was you know his way of saying yeah technically that gets the job done you know so that's that's useful if that works that's useful um oh so the uh yeah the credential thing um so yeah he was very concerned with that about that how to get from one place to another without having to set it up if you will Hmm. And so one thing he used to say was, uh, um, one rehearsal, he said, all right, you guys, what do you think a passing tone is? And we always, you know, different people kind of raised their hand and said, well, it's sort of like notes you use to get from one place to another or, you know, one note to another. And, um, you know, the weak degrees of the uh, scale and so forth. And uh, I kind of... Uh, Held, held my ammo there and because i knew i could i had a feeling where he was going was there were no passing tones and sure enough he says you know i've been thinking i don't think there's such a thing as passing tones 
He says, because if a passing tone gets you from one place to another, he says, if I want to go somewhere, I don't have to use notes to get me there. I just go there. This is interesting because, you know, this is something that occurs in Debussy, where not all of these modulations are prepared. And, and the idea is the move. And I think the move has a lot to do with film and a post-filmic way of thinking, a post-visual world where we can jump cut from thing to thing. And discontinuity is also a big issue as you come out of the 60s. So, you know, it's if you if we give Ornette uh, the, his due credit in terms of conceptualizing things that are, are occurring in art at large, certainly that's one. And of course, the 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 compound interval thing where he's not scalar, he's intervallic. Cecil also, by the way, very intervallic, maybe at times scalar, but not not much. So this is it's it's kind of funny how you see these things relating in an abstract way and they can be applied so openly. And I think that's part of it, too, is the fluidity of these concepts in different settings. It's amazing how so many people and not just not just jazz, not just music, but in, uh, you know, so many arts felt as though they had to solve the same problems felt like they were confronted with the same issues that had to be resolved you know at the same time um sense of I, place a sense of movement sense of velocity and change stasis gravity yeah it's funny it just seemed like things had had led the the arts to that moment and certain things had to be resolved before they could progress interesting but the the eureka moment uh as far as that no passing tones thing for me anyway was um you know there, there were a lot of things he talked about and some of them like clefts he'd get into and a lot of times you know playing a, a concert equal tempered instrument that didn't always uh it wasn't as revelatory a way of looking at it for me as it was for him, I think, uh, or his journey as a horn player and finding out about um, transposing instruments and that type of thing. Well, let me ask you, before we go on, though, let me ask you about Ornette's violin playing and his trumpet playing. What was that for you? Um, well, I, for one thing, I wouldn't put them together. The uh, The trumpet playing was much more traditionally melodic than the violin playing the uh the violin thing for him could be you know a uh energy kind of a more of an abstracted uh physical kind of uh uh approach whereas the the trumpet thing you know he had tremendous uh, range and flexibility on the horn and um uh uh, people I know that a, a lot of musicians that once they finally listened to him on trumpet in later years were amazed. They were like, I, di I didn't know he could really play like that. And uh, uh, so even though he would tend to sort of lump them together at the end of the set, you know, at the, uh, at least when I was playing with him, you know, at the grand finale, he'd do a thing where he'd go through all the instruments and so forth. Uh, and I think part of it was like, 
juxtaposing instruments the same way you juxtapose keys. And it was also not lost on me that, uh, you know, Cecil's front line in the great late 70s band was uh, alto trumpet violin. But um, I thought, ah, there's something about the, the relationship of those three instruments. Um, but um, there was one time, again, we were talking on the tour bus, and um, he said, um, oh, oh, I know what it was. There was like the second tune of the night was this kind of uh, bluesy ballad that he'd written. And you can imagine the kind of solo he'd take on that every night and just knock it out of the park. Just, just great. Just, you know, on the alto and just, just right up his alley. And um, we were talking on the bus and uh, I said, you know, because sometimes I would say things to him sort of to provoke him a little bit, be a little bit of a devil's advocate and just to see what he'd say, you know. And um, I said, you know, you always uh, end the night with the, the trumpet and the violin. And I said, you know, maybe it'd be cool sometime to go out and like you'd open with the violin. And he went, like this, like, oh man, like, you know, what are you saying now that, you know, you're, you're upsetting the apple cart now. And, uh, we didn't say too much more about it. And I said, but yeah, I just thought about that. And I said, I'm just thinking about what effect that would have on the sound of the music and the way you conceptualize your own playing to start from there and then continue from that with the alto. And you know, yeah, you know, whatever. So didn't think much more of it next gig we get to that second tune that's his his big alto showcase puts down the alto picks up the violin and i thought oh wow because immediately what i realized was all right mr smartass you thought you could challenge me well here's what i'm willing to give up what are you willing to give up to get to the next step you know and I went, oh, don't poke the bear if you don't want to, you know, take what's coming. Hmm. So that was, what an amazing thing that was. What a courageous thing for him to do that. And like I said, that was just, uh, there was a certain aspect of his plan, which was so great that he got to showcase every night. And uh, uh, so part of it, uh, you know, I'm thinking, what did I do? Um, but um uh, I, I, again, I don't think it was, it was just me. I think that it, um, you know, he related to what I was saying and he wanted to see what that would do too. Um, uh, but that, that was interesting on the, uh, on the business with the, um, uh, no passing tones. He said to us one time on the band. Um, so any two triads, major, minor, augmented, diminished, either have a note in common or they're only separated by a half step. And uh, we're all sitting around and we want, he's, he's right, he's right. And uh, <laughs> I remember Al McDowell told me this story once about, he was in a bar talking to Joe Zavinal. And uh, Zavinal says, you know, when he talked, he said, hey man, what's up with this homilotic stuff, man? And Al says, well, you know, a lot of times on the bus, Ornette will, uh, uh, give us little exercises or brain teasers or something like that. And he said, just today he was saying that any two triads uh, either have a note in common or just separated by a half step. And he says, Joe goes, oh yeah, well, what about C major and F sharp major? 
and how serious. Well, you see, you got the F sharp and F sharp major, the G and the C major, that's a half step. You've got um, a C and C major and the C sharp and F sharp major, that's another half step like that. So Joe goes, so what? <laughs> he, he was not about to be impressed by the likes of that. But um, for me, what was amazing was I realized that I could modulate from anywhere to anywhere else on a dime, either by using a common tone transposition or a leading tone transposition. So in other words, I didn't have to set it up with a circle of fifths or something to get from one okay. place. That's understood. And that's fair. Um, I guess what I'm trying also to understand my whole life of listening to Ornette with all the different groupings that he played in is the simultaneity of all of the voices going in a tune and what it is he's hearing there, what he's hoping to hear there. Are there roles, R-O-L-E-S, that are taken on by certain players that they, they're they assigned? Are bass players somehow fundamental? What 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 do you what can you tell us about that, Dave? Um, I uh, I always felt it was sort of like that uh, constant um, uh, self monitoring between the players of the relationship, almost like that that intervallic relationship between the musicians, if you will. But not a key center. N uh, no, not so much. I mean, you're sort of passing out, uh, uh, passing in between. Uh, and through different key centers. Uh, and of course, one way to sort of stay on the same page is through being in the same key, but that's not the only way. And so one way to do it, uh, again, is intervallically. If you have that, use that as an organizing principle, uh, you can have that. Uh, uh, and the way you would do that would be more motivically too, you know. Um, um, but it's, uh, first of all, a lot of that, though was very much, um, I want to say, you know, if you say intuitively that that implies something uh, uh, so ephemeral, you can't articulate it or something like that. And, and, and it wasn't that spacey, but it was more like just keeping track of where the other guy was. And then trying to keep that relationship constant and balanced. And so that that balance it would be what you're hearing in when that happens successfully. Uh, I remember um, uh, Bern Nix used to say that bad harmonics was like spaghetti. He'd always say that, listen to those lines, that's just spaghetti. And so I I, I think I I came up with uh, that good harmonics and was more like plaid, you know, where you got, <laughs> well, everything, everything doesn't have to be right angles though, but, but still, but those relationships that are, are uh, pleasingly spaced and pleasingly uh, uh, constant in some fashion. Could there have been um, instances where he was hoping for or asking for registral partitioning? Um, Charlie Ellerby, I remember, was um, talking to me one time about how Ornette would talk to him a lot of times about, I guess, orchestrational kind of ideas like, 
all right, if Burns playing single lines, you play chords. If he's playing in a high register, you play in a low register, something like that. And so he did, I think, uh, uh, definitely, it wasn't so much that he was looking for variety, I would say. Uh, I guess the way I would think about it is, is he was trying to avoid redundancy, if that makes sense. Um, and uh, he always used to say to me, uh, get after me that my playing was so linear well part of it was because what i was learning from him was linear in a, a large sense precisely because he was a horn player but he'd say to me why don't you why don't you play more notes at once he'd say i would if i could but i can't and uh and he'd say don't play chords play sounds and that was the other thing about the passing tone and not wanting uh chromatic voice leading the traditional kind of things we do with the uh, diminished chords and that type of thing going from one place to another in a progression um and he would very much like uh, you know the way people play giant steps on the piano with triads in the right hand with a melody note on top dun, 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 dun. and you pick it up and you take those triads and pick them up and put them down and just they just jump around like that and uh, that was like the kind of company liked. Uh, uh, not so much for the, the leap, but it was, he didn't want, again, this is that, um, uh, that type of chord progression would be very much of a horizontal linear chronology. You know what I mean? Going from here to here in time, beginning, middle, end. And, uh, even though he was a master of that too, and he could keep his eye on the forest and the trees, he wanted that thing also that every moment. He didn't want that bellows breath that traditional European harmony is based on a, a weak and strong and weak and strong, weak and strong. He wanted strong, 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 strong. And that meant try it, try it, try it, try it, primary color, primary color, primary color all the time. And how how it worked in juxtaposition to each other was that was how the progression if you will worked just the, that was where the harmonic complexity came in that was where the the chronology of it came in was just in the in the juxtaposition of these relative strengths does that make sense i think so i, I think that is what's going on uh, i'm not sure always when I listen, how it's achieved or what the process is, but you've definitely given me some insight on that. And I, I appreciate that. I was curious if in your time around Ornette, if you ever had any moments or run-ins with Don Cherry or Charlie Hayden. Um, you know, of uh, all the guys, I always um, thought that uh, I would hit it off with Charlie. But here we two guys that grew up in a, uh, you know, relatively rural uh, part of the country. And, uh, uh, you know, I just, I just thought we had a lot in common and I had just uh, idolized his work so much with, uh, with Keith and um, first, first jazz concert I saw in Richmond, Virginia was uh, Gary Burton's uh, quintet with um Pat and uh, Mick Goodrick and Steve Swallow and Bob Moses 
uh, with Eberhard Weber sitting in, opening up for Keith's American Quartet. And that was that was one of them life changers. Just just too much because I had just gotten, uh, you remember in Downbeat, uh, when you uh, subscribed, you could uh, get a free album and you had to select what album you wanted. And so I got uh, Death in the Flower. And um, uh, that was, uh, that's what they opened with that night. And um, uh, just, just, just an amazing experience. And um, I knew there was some relationship there between what Keith was doing and uh, Ornette, because I'd heard a little about Ornette's music, but I, I didn't really know it at that point. I knew Keith more, so I, I backed into um Ornette's music through Keith's American Quartet and part of what I wanted to learn was how to write those kind of triadic sounding tunes those major key sounding tunes but I knew there was something different between the way Keith did it and the way Ornette did it and what different what was the difference you know under the hood and I think a lot of it was that Keith as a piano player did use a lot of 5-1 kind of setups that Ornette was trying to involved but anyway with charlie uh with charlie yeah I, I don't know personally uh you know uh he was pleasant enough but the guy that really went out of his way to be really warm and welcoming to me was cherry and i didn't expect that at all i um uh, the first uh like gig i did with ornette uh, was um, that same week the uh, the quartet was uh, going to be playing with him too with, on the same festival. And um, I was backstage afterwards and I had to say, hey man, hey man. And I look over and it's Cherry on the other side of the stage. He goes, hey man, are you the piano player? And I said, uh, yeah, yeah. And he goes, oh man. He says, I just want to tell you, I, I think it really takes something special to hear the piano and this music, you know, and, and man, just, you know, good luck to you. And I thought, wow, that's so nice. Cause I'd had some interaction with, with Charlie and it, you know, and it, it just been a little, I, I don't know. He just hadn't been that direct, hadn't been that warm, hadn't been that forthcoming. And I had sought him out, but with Cherry, I hadn't, and I'm a little afraid of Cherry. You know what I mean? Cause I've heard stories. He, he was so striking visually in person where i mean he's striking in photographs but it was like seeing a movie star that looks that way on the screen that really does look that way in real life don Cherry really did look that way you know yeah it's true i remember that yeah. yeah and so uh the next day um i saw i went out i was uh walking out the front door of the hotel and walking down the street and i saw cherry on the uh the, the edge of the sidewalk and he was walking at one foot in front of the other with his arms up like he was a trapeze artist you know like this and he's, he's balancing and I was like oh my man's going out here I thought I lucked out last night but I'm you know I could keep my head down this morning and I walk past him and I, I hear behind me hey man hey man and I thought oh wow is he talking to me again and I turned around and uh, yeah and he goes do you know Billy Higgins? Billy just flew in. Billy, this is Dave. This is, and I was like, I felt so, I felt so stupid. I felt so small, you know, I thought, 
why didn't I just say, Don, how you doing, man? But uh, but yeah, I I knew from then. I, every time I, I saw him afterwards, he would uh, he would come over, and um, I remember uh, you know at rehearsal, uh, he you know he'd uh, listen to a prime time rehearsal and on a break, he'd come over and lean over my shoulder and show me some voicings and talk about. Charlie Hayden, not Char Charlie, Char Charlie Parker, and the you know the relationship with his music to bebop and so forth. And a lot of times he kind of had this you know kind of a slightly hoarse whisper, and I I couldn't always pick up all of what he was saying even. But it was you know, me trying to follow it. And of course at the same time there's there's the self that's that's outside of myself watching this happen, going Don Cherry is leaning over my shoulder playing my keyboard. But um um. I remember the, also there was one night that uh, he and I were both staying at Ornette's place after rehearsal. And um, I said at one point, uh, I'm going to run downstairs and, and get something to drink. Would you guys like anything? And Cherry um, says, uh, I'd, I'd like a pack of cigarettes here. And he gets out a couple of bucks you know, and hands it to me. And Ornette's kind of, you know, like this, uh, flustered by it. And you know, when that's walking me in the door, and he, he's saying something like, I, "I wish he wouldn't do that." You know, like he he didn't like it. Like, when uh, it felt like uh, I like Cherry was was asking somebody in his band to wait. You know, it was almost like that. Like he felt like that. And of course, I'm thinking, Don Cherry asked me to buy him a pack of cigarettes. This is the greatest day of my life. You know, I mean, it was not like that for me at all. But uh, but Ornette very much had that kind of thing where. One day I hired Don and one day I hired you, you know, I mean, it's like, again, not the way I saw things, but that was the way Ornette saw things, you know, very much. And so I uh, uh, went down, got him his cigarettes. So um, uh, also uh, worth mentioning, maybe, is uh, I was with Ornette when word came in that Don had passed. I... Uh, we were getting uh, ready uh, for a car to come and take us to the airport. We were leaving for a tour. And I remember telling her on that, you know, I got this idea. You know how you, you always feel so scuzzy when you get off the plane. I said, I'm going to take a shower now. And I'm going to see, you know, you try to get your road jobs together. And I, I said, I want to see then if I feel like hipper, you know, fresher when I get off the plane. And he goes, all right, well, that sounds like a good idea. So I went and took a shower. And when I came back and got out of the shower, he had gotten the call while I was in the shower. And um, it's not lost on me that Ornette has just heard that Don Cherry has died. And it's me and Ornette sitting here. And then it was me and Ornette in the, in the car together going to the airport. And I'm thinking, I know there are perfect words to say here, but darn if I know what they are. And uh, every once in a while, you know, he'd look out the window or something and kind of shake his hand. Don Cherry. You know, and I and I would try to prompt him a little bit with a, you know, I read in an interview that he said when he met you, something, something, something. And you're like, yeah, yeah. But, you know, he, he didn't really want to talk like that. You know, I felt a little obligated to say something. And yet at the same time, I felt obligated to leave him alone. So, um, you know that's so interesting too that we we understand the importance of those relationships you know uh ornette and cherry and uh cecil and jimmy lyons 
And you you just brought to mind how I was around when Jimmy Lyons passed. And I knew that he was ill because I was studying with Andrew Cyril. And I knew that we were working on uh, dedicatory pieces on inflorescence, Jay being the opening track for Jimmy. And when these guys lose that guy and you hear them talk about it, I just want to communicate what, you know, reiterate what Dave said. It's, it's just a profound loss of a musical partner who was the perfect foil in each case. I mean, who would you say other than, than Cherry and Ornette and, and Cecil and Jimmy Lyons? Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, one time I was, um, he was talking about, I guess, there was, I can't remember what the setup was right now, but it was something where um, the way maybe an interviewer or somebody had asked him about Don Cherry uh, in a way that had, Uh, sort of inquired as to what Cherry contributed to Harmelotic, say, or something like that. And I think Ornette maybe had, I don't want to say bristled at it, but I, I, I think that he very much felt that this, con this initial conception of his was not a communal conception. It was very much a personal thing that that he had then brought to other musicians and, and had cultivated these relationships, if that's fair. Um, and he was trying to express this, why this question had frustrated him or, or had, uh, uh, you know, hadn't suited him for some reason. And uh, as I was listening to him, I, don't, I, I just happened to think this and I kind of blurted out, are you saying that Don Cherry was like Dizzy Gillespie and he wheeled around and stared me in the eye and said, exactly. And I thought, wow, 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 wow. Cause I mean, I knew he didn't have anything against Dizzy Gillespie, but I knew that for him, you know, Bird was the man. And for Jimmy Lyons, Bird is the man. And Jimmy Lyons is Bird in Cecil's group. And I wanted to add also this point for our listeners that when I was working with Ornette on the Harmelotic Chamber Players piece in 2000, I had a moment where I got to ask Ornette about Jimmy Lyons in particular and Eric Dolphy, because I had always sort of thought of them as being like the three most important post uh, Charlie Parker alto players for the kind of music that I was into or certainly are brand of avant-garde jazz like these were the guys who were carrying the torch for those guys and ornette was super complimentary and enthusiastic that i brought them up oh yeah jimmy lyons oh eric Dolphy, you know they were just amazing doing incredible things whereas i would have thought there'd been some kind of competition or something but you see later like ornette's playing at the end with sonny rollins and you know there there's this sense of community among players who you would think maybe had a competition because you. I think, as you know, Dave Ornette was also quite competitive. I, mean, I think with those guys, it's almost like a uh, a sibling thing where they could throw some shade on the other horn player, but don't you do it? You know what I mean? So it's yeah, represent it to somebody else. They could um, 
uh, you know, the, when it uh, when it came right down to it, they very much respected each other. Uh, Ornette told me a great story one time, though, about when he was living in California and trying to get into the scene there, you know, with Clifford Brown and, you know, Dolphy and, and, and not making much headway the way he described it. But he said, uh, he said, I've been working on something and I came up with with this, this idea. It was like, you know, some uh, theoretical kind of thing. Uh, and uh, he said, I went over to Eric's house. And I just wanted to show him this so bad. I said, oh, man, Eric, I, I, I found this thing and I want to show it to you. And he says, oh, he said, oh, come on in, come on in on it. And he said, yeah, yeah, listen, I want to play something for you. And he said, he sat me down in front of his record player. And he said, he put on this record. And he says, hang on a minute, I'll be right back. And he says, I found out a few minutes later, he left at the back door and didn't come back. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, they went through some stuff together, no question. <laughs> yeah, I remember being at a Cecil party and uh, a woman named Jeannie Phillips told me that she was Dolphy's girlfriend at some point in L.A. And uh, and she said, you know, we'd be at a party and Eric would be in the back room practicing. You know, and it's just it's such a great snapshot of what, you know, what was going on. Another thing I wanted to get on on the record, too, is about Ornette is when Cecil and I were invited to go see the Grateful Dead at Madison Square Garden, and just so happened that Ornette and Donardo were there at the same time. I was fascinated by the fact that Ornette, out of nowhere, I can't remember what the context was in a conversation with uh, Phil Lesh, said, the only white man who could ever sing the blues was Captain Beefheart. <laughs> well, I know they were friends, and because I, I remember he said to me one time, uh, but he says, oh, yeah, I know him. Uh, Don used to come over and show me his paintings, he'd say. Yeah. And another guy. Visual Sonic right there, too. Yeah, and then definitely a um, uh, musician, again, that had that, that personal breakthrough that they then wanted to communicate as a communal experience. Yeah. Well, this has been a communal experience talking to you, Dave. I mean, we can go on and on, but I feel like we've covered a, a lot of ground here today. Well, I've so many times I've watched the podcast and wished I could join in the conversation as you do with all good interviews. So, <laughs> well, this this is all all connected for us here at the podcast, and and Ornette was certainly a uh, forward moving artist. I mean, he's he he inspired us from from an early age, and I I still find things about his music that oh I got to really listen to this you know Ornette on tenor record more, or I got to listen to uh, to uh, Native Beauty or you know one of those, and and certainly the the record that you're on, which is Tone Dialing. Yeah, the the Twain never meets. I work on that gig still every day. You know, I mean it's. Uh, you uh, trying to reach that uh, harmonic core through equal temperament is like uh, you know trying to reach absolute zero. You can come close, but uh, what's good is once you get close, you can see what the differences are, and you know what when you know what the trade offs are, then you can deal with it. I think that's a good strategy for improvisational music mm, and life. Yeah. <laughs> well thanks my guest has been dave bryant keyboardist extraordinaire 
member of Ornette Coleman's prime time, longtime collaborator and friend of Ornette. And Or Ornette certainly has shared some insights with you, Dave, and thank you for sharing them with us. I will mention one other thing, our CD that we did together, uh, Night Visitors with Charnette Moffat. Um, Ornette, a lot of times when people would ask him about different sidemen, he would say something to the effect of, uh, oh, you know, when he played with me, he was playing really good. And so <laughs> I I don't want to, I never want to be that guy. But if you're a Greg Bendian fan, I have to say, he sounds really good on this. Well, <laughs> That was a fun uh, interaction. I got to record with one of the great bass players, Charnette Moffat, knew, knew what his lineage was. And you and I had worked together previously, and we always had that connection. So, yeah, Night Visitors, It's on. is it on uh, Bandcamp? I know it's on Spotify. Yeah. 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 And uh, I do recommend that one. It's um, it, it's funny. You're right. I, I, I've tried to play differently on everybody's stuff. And I think you got something different out of me on that one for sure. Well, it's great because we get to hear all sides of your playing. Just hmm. a wide range and everything from the straight ahead to the glockenspiel to the some, uh, you know, power fusionist stuff. So it's, it's uh, very nice. And again, it's not jumping from place to place, but it's living in that place where all these different cross currents can can talk together you know it might be my only recorded dumbbag performance i'm trying to think but i know i also did some some hand drumming oh no there's also the Derek bailey banter but yeah it's it's um it's a nice variety of things and and i think one of charnett's final recordings yeah 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 no that, that was great i uh, uh just uh when i had the initial idea to put you guys together. I uh, that, that was uh, strange. I, uh, I, if you don't mind, if I just say this, I, I when I was I was lying in bed one night and kind of putting together imaginary bands in my head, and just it was like you know you pull down the arm of the slot machine and, and Charnette Bendian came up, and I thought, you know, sat upright in bed. I mean, it was one of those things where it was almost like. It was such a perfect pairing because it was almost like musically you you were the same people in a strange way. And I only knew because I had had very significant experiences playing with both of you separately, but I had no idea how you were going to sound together. And I realized that other people would have that same reaction. They're both really good, but I can't imagine how they would sound together. So I knew the pairing would be provocative, but also I kind of realized how I would have to play with you. And very much uh, a lot of times in my own music, I set everything up. So it's, you know, it's easy for me. It's I, I get to play the way I want to play. And for that, it was very much I, I was sort of a, a method actor on that one. Uh, I had to, what's my motivation here? I had to, I sort of created a character and, and, and walked into that world, you know, uh, you, which is not generally. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, not usually the way I, I would uh, work or prefer to work, but uh, for that one, that was uh, uh, very much, you know, the way it, uh, the way it went. Uh, so I was very surprised by it. And yet it was almost like 
between you guys, such a perfect pairing. It was as though somehow it had happened already somewhere, somewhere out there at some other, you know, uh, you know, David Lynch dimension. And yet this time we were just putting it together on this plane here. So that was uh, really was a, a, an amazing experience that way. Very unique um, in my personal experience, but uh, but uh, great thing to be able to share that with you and Charnett. And I was able to share with Charnett my admiration for his dad and how that trio with Eisenzen and and his father with Ornette's music was special to me. The, uh, so maybe that's an insight too. I, we both had uh, been influenced by <laughs> Charles Moffat. So, yeah, absolutely. You know, and uh, and that's that was really interesting too because I kind of think you're right. We did come from a similar place, and I also knew that his uh, dad played Glockenspiel. Yeah, but you both present in a way that that I found very similar, mm -hmm. where, where it's not just you know you're playing and the mic happens to be uh, picking it up. You're, you're very much. Uh, uh, present uh, uh, like a good public speaker you know you both have that kind of flair of uh, as uh, communicators of, of being uh, very clear and direct with uh, with your statement and have a similarly wide range of, uh, of stylistic things you can get into too so uh, having said that obviously from different backgrounds different places but um, I remember after we did the first uh tune and uh, we go back to the control room and uh, my wife said that Charnett leaned over to her and said I guess uh, Dave and Greg play together a lot huh and she said not really <laughs> so never enough but uh, but yeah it was uh, the the things that came off there mixing that thing and just hearing the way you guys related and the way you both set me up and managed to uh, to uh, display your own virtuosity never get in my way but always be very sensitive to the ensemble pick your spots and project like that just uh masterful so just just a great experience thank you oh what a pleasure and uh dave where can everybody find these videos of these cool shows and interviews you're doing i guess the youtube channel is dave bryant music and uh, it's a concert series sponsored by the uh, Appalachian Springs Foundation, which is run by some folks that I, I knew through Ornette. And uh, they had um, a furtherance of Ornette's uh, uh, theoretical and uh, musical legacy as part of their mission statement. And um, they've uh, underwritten the um, concert series Third Thursdays that we do every the third Thursday of every month here in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. And um, we uh, post a, a highlight video every month from that. And uh, when it's an Ornette sideman, I do a little oral history chat with them and uh, we try to get a, some things on the record. So we've, we've had, uh, you know, some of the greats, uh, 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 Calvin Weston and Andrew McDowell and uh, a lot of great people. So uh, yeah, check us out, some good things. Look for that, definitely, folks. It's uh, very informative, very cool insights into Ornette's world and through the people that he collaborated with. And you get to hear some really cool music as well. So maybe we'll leave it there for today. Dave Bryant has been my guest. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, everybody, for listening. As always, uh, you can hit us at bendianmusic.com if you have any comments you want to 
pass along. I do appreciate all of the feedback and just so much positive energy coming from everybody that checks out these things. And uh, on the road with Ma Vishnu Project, I have people coming up to me all the time telling me their favorite episodes or their favorite question. And uh, I'm so glad we're getting heading into our third anniversary and our 100th episode coming up. So it's great to have Dave here and we'll see you all next time, everybody. Thanks. Please hit us on Patreon and, and like and subscribe. Take care.